Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed. We've got a treat for you guys tonight. We're being joined by Scott Keys of YouTube and Instagram fame. Scott is a prolific photographer, and he's been doing a lot more on the video end uh, as far as his Instagram feed, and it's it's fun to watch. It's a little bit more on the lighter side, like we like, we like to hang out and uh, keep things light while we're even while we're in the field so i think you guys are in for a treat tonight welcome scott thanks for coming on thank you and uh yeah definitely true i i, I don't know prolific i shoot a lot but i definitely enjoy the lighter side of life and photography <laughs> so yeah i think this so this should be a fun episode uh we've got myself ron hayes and jason loftus coming to us from utah jason how things been i've uh, been good just busy you know that seems to be the story for all of us lately just busy busy waiting the, to get back out and shoot again it's been been pretty rough to find time and you know colds and sickness going around and all kinds of stuff you know so i'm um, heading out this weekend so i'm looking forward to that yeah the wolf activity is picking up so i'm excited to get back out to the yellowstone right. area yep. so scott now you are where are you based out of so i'm in eastern pennsylvania i live in we call it the lehigh valley but allentown you know, of the Billy Joel song fame. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of my home. That's my home. So Eastern Pennsylvania. I've been, I've got a friend. Oh, shoot. He's got a cabin. What is the name of the mountains? They start with a P. Poconos. Poconos. Yeah. He's got a yeah, cabin it's... in the middle of the Poconos and there's some beautiful country out there. It is a wonderful. So I live about an hour South. Uh, most of, uh, most of my songbird photography is done in the Poconos. It is a wonderful, oh, really? wonderful place for breeding mm-hmm. warblers and not just warblers, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful place. And, um, yeah, I, I, I do get up there quite a bit. Now, is that your primary focus? You're primarily a bird photographer? Oh yeah, I, I am 99.9%. I always tell people if something walks in front of my lens, I'm going to shoot it. If it's a fox or an elk or something like that. But, mm-hmm. uh, my obsession is birds. It always has been. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoy it. I, I rarely take any planned trips for anything other than birds. So again, if it's, you know, incidental, something walks in front of me, I'll, I'll photograph it. But uh, even in my yard, I've got fox that live behind my house. Very rarely do I do I make an intentional effort to photograph them. One time one walked out in front of me, I photographed it. But yeah, it's just, uh, it's just not my thing. Find that a lot with East Coast photographers, because that's, I mean, that's the primary opportunity that's available out there depending on where you're located but in pennsylvania you guys have a a fairly good elk population now and then obviously a lot of white-tailed deer as well but yeah oh yeah Uh, deer are everywhere there's an elk it's it's an odd elk population it's only in one part of the state it is pretty popular in in the you know during the rut a lot of photographers i know will go up there i've been up there once or twice um I would do it again. It's again, it's just not my favorite thing to do. I would probably get distracted and be off chasing birds somewhere <laughs> while all these these elk are out there bugling and, you know, courting each other and ramming heads and doing what they do. I'd probably be staring off at birds somewhere. <laughs> Jason's about the exact opposite. The bird would have to fly in the in front of his <laughs> lens, sit there and sing just to him. 
<laughs> to get him to photograph. You know, it's funny. The, I was just go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say during the elk rut. There's other times of the year that's a different case, but right. Yeah, I'd be hard pressed to take my thoughts away from an elk during the elk rut. But yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It's funny. I would be just probably exactly opposite. I I don't. I like birds. I think they're intriguing. Um, they are fun to shoot. Um, I don't go out and intentionally shoot them. If one flies in front of me, I'll take the opportunity to shoot it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Same kind of thing. But, um, but it's interesting. I found myself getting more and more interested in birds. And I think it's just because there's, I've always loved waterfowl. Waterfowl is a huge favorite of mine. If a duck flew in front of me, it'd be another story. Yep. But, um, I found myself getting more and more intrigued in the birds. And I think it's just because there's just so many and there's so many variety and species yep. and, you could spend a career trying to photograph all the birds and probably would never come close. Right. I mean, I don't know. Uh, yeah. It'd be, that's interesting. I'm... I think the biggest thing, like you mentioned the variety. So in a, in a given year, I'll probably photograph a hundred different species. I mean, I'll see maybe 150 species, but I can, I can photograph and post on social media, probably easily 70 or 80 species a year. And we've got, 25 or 30 warblers that come through this way i can get just about all of them got a handful of shorebirds you got raptors that come through um then there's all these other songbirds buntings and cardinals and blue jays and all that. i mean there's just so many bird species i'd say by the end of it i could probably get out 80 to 100 species a year and and for me it's just the it's it's that thing where um i look at a lot of photographers who do like big game and, and to me, it's just, how do you, like, it's the same elk. Like, it's just, it's just an elk. Like, you've already shot it this year. Don't you have something else to do? Isn't there another species of elk you could be photographing? It's not but... just an elk, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's yeah. But, but it, I think it is a, it is a difference in just the way, uh, and it's just the way people are wired, right? Like, it's just like, hey, mm -hmm. this, I'm the guy at the buffet that has, like, a little scoop of everything, like, literally everything on there. Right. And then there's some people that wired that they're going to go up and they like their favorite dish and they just want a big old plate of it. And I'm like, yeah, but what about all the other stuff you just passed by? So, yeah, I'm the guy that just wants a lot of everything. That's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm that way with grouse. I I badly want to travel to Europe and get all the grouse species or the lecking birds in, okay. in Europe as well as the U.S. I've got all but one in the U.S., so I've got to get the... Uh, sooty subspecies okay. of the of the blue grouse so um, it, that's interesting because the grouse is actually a species here that is, is very difficult we only get roughed grouse uh, for mm -hmm. the most part it's really the old uh, i guess we get ring-necked pheasants as a game bird most of those are just bred for hunting and, and released in the wild right. so you just come across yeah. them um, and those things are so stupid they just walk up to you i'm like how is this a challenge I'm driving in my car trying to avoid these things on the road, and these guys are over here with guns shooting them. I'm like, this is, you gotta find a tougher species, because I could walk <laughs> over there and just grab it with my hand, <laughs> because they're not wild. You know, when a bird, right. I think, raised in captivity or bred for the purposes of hunting, they right. tend not to be the smartest creatures in the world because they don't have no. those instincts. Whereas a wild bird, you know, out here, if you run across a grouse, it's, it's probably a wild bird, more mm -hmm. than likely, and, and it, they're very tough to photograph. So, yeah, the only thing we have out here is really rough grouse, and, and I have never, I've seen a couple, but I've never gotten a, an image that I would, I would post anywhere. And I would love to go out to the Midwest, or, or even Texas has got some, uh, some, some different species down there, but uh, I would love to do it. It's, they're amazing, and to, I think to hear it, you know, during that time period where they're mm -hmm. 
you know, the males are courting and showing off and displaying. I think that would be just incredible. We had a we had a great opportunity. Jason and I were actually on top of the mountain over um, near Grand Teton National Park. Great opportunity for a rough grouse, but the log that he was drumming on about 50 yards to the east was a big male big boar grizzly bear oh and, boy. Uh, there were there was some mating behavior going on between the the male and female but this grouse was just going crazy uh-huh. i mean you could hear him it was so tempting i was like man i just want to go but there was no way i was going to go in that dark timber with with that bear oh, no. that close so yeah no way <laughs> Especially, and I don't know, and I don't know bear behavior at all, but I would imagine when they're all charged up like that, you know, that anything could happen. Like they just yeah, they're, probably just. They're pretty much one track mind when they were in the position where, you know, he was definitely pursuing her. Okay. Um, however, it doesn't take very long to change their mind or yeah. if he feels interrupted or slighted or challenged, then things can go bad. So it's just, it's not worth taking the chance for the bear. Right. So. But yeah, yeah it, that was uh, it was a, a temptation almost more than I could bear. <laughs> but yeah, Uh-oh. you should come out for uh, come out in the spring. There's three, four grouse species right in the area, so we could we could get you on a pretty good uh, pretty good variety. Yeah, I, I've been. I went out to Utah, and I don't know what it's like there. Um, I know it's it, there. They have territories that are pretty well established, so I don't again. I don't know anything about about grouse um, out that way. I will tell you though. Uh, there's first of all, there's a lot of photographers in Utah, a lot of photographers in Utah, um, a lot of bird photographers in Utah, and, and and actually some really good bird photographers in Utah. A uh, few that I talked to, and I, I went out a few years ago. Um, and it was it was beautiful. I loved I loved it there. Uh, one of the things that's really that I, I find for photography is, is a lot of people, I talk about this hyper-focus on subjects and they, they just want to like uh, get as close as I can to this creature and get every like feather or, or you know, fur and little salmon hanging out the teeth of the grizzly bear. They just want to get as close as they can. In some parts of the country, um, it really is nice to, to show where you're at. And I can just remember um, I was there in winter and I had some rough-legged hawks and a lot of photographers, I think, would, would look at these at a distance and say, eh, you know, he's too far away. And, you know, I'm just waiting for him to fly through these mountains and hit the right area where the, you know, the peaks are kind of there and come through there and show it in the context of those mountains. Because when you look at, when I think about Utah, that's kind of what I think about, you know, that part of Utah. And, um, yeah, really, really nice backdrops for some photography there. I, I really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. I was only there for about four or five days, but um, I had a blast. I loved it. So when you, or when I look at your work, there's a, there's a good variety of the real tight shots. And then there's, Mm -hmm. you know, those shots where smaller in the frame kind of gives it that sense of place. First of all, we didn't touch on it, I guess. So how did you get your start in photography? Were you a birder first or a photographer first and then make the change? And then what kind of, how'd you develop your style? I, I, I'll actually... I, I will try to find an image and I'll, I'll pull it up at some point. I know I have it in here somewhere, um, but I was on a hike. I, my, my sons were soccer players in, at a very high level and they were getting older. And I, you know, I'm the dad and I, I'm like, ah, I got to get a camera and, 
I, I, got, can't, I can't miss this, right? They're teenagers, they're getting into high school age. So I go out and buy whatever 200 millimeter lens and starter Nikon uh, D3000 or whatever it was at the time. And um, three frames a second. And I quickly learned that my, one of my sons was a goalkeeper. And I quickly learned that even three frames a second wasn't fast enough. So uh, I, I, real, I quickly wanted to get a better camera. But in that time where I had this longer lens in between games or back and forth, I would just start to notice things around my house a little bit more. And I just wanted to use the camera and play around with it. So I, I took a couple bird pictures here and there. But we went on a hike. And we got to the top of this mountain. It was in the middle of summer. And there was nothing. There was not a bird not a hawk. It was Hawk Mountain, like the nationally known hawk watch location. So I thought you go to Hawk Mountain and there's just hawks like flying over your head all the time. And, you know, that's what, that's what it is. Why would they name it Hawk Mountain? Well, in the middle of summer, there's no hawks. So we see a couple, you know, turkey vultures and I'm getting, I'm literally getting ready to leave. And um, this little, this little bird popped up in front of me and I had absolutely no idea what it was. I took a picture of it. And, and that was it. I, I went home. I, I was like, I can't believe this bird exists. It was, it was crazy looking. And um, at the time I started to research the bird, I started to want to learn more about birds and I wanted to take pictures. So I just, I, and, and I was all in, like my kids were getting older. You know, I was, I, I, I had a more free time on my hand than usual. And, uh, I needed like a hobby, like I needed something to do. And I just started, I, I just got obsessed with birds. Like I just got a, like crazy about it. I started researching them, going on the internet. I would meet people, um, came into little groups. Actually, you know what? Let me see if I can pop this up. I think I can put this up on the screen and uh, we'll see if this works. That's a picture from uh, June 19th of 2013. That's the first I had no idea what this bird was. It was the first picture I ever took of a bird. And um, it turned out to be a black and white warbler. Never seen one. Thought it was crazy looking. And if you don't know birds, like you see a bird like this, and you're like, wow, that's different. It's not a cardinal or a blue jay or something you see every day, a robin. And um, as the years went by, like I started to photograph the same species, like over... And it turns out this bird is is one of the most common birds in this area that breeds here. So in the in the spring and summer, I'll see these almost any time I'm in the woods. I'll see one if I'm in the right areas, or if not several. And you hear them nonstop. So you know, over the years, I was able to take that same species and photograph it, like you said, a hundred different ways, close, environmental. Um, I don't necessarily think I have like one style, but what's really important to me is is that it includes um, like habitat, that it shows or tr attempts to show where these birds are um, and how they behave and what it looks like. So when I can include that, you know, that's what I really like. I actually posted uh, a picture the other day, something like this, and this is a different species, but a black and white, a uh, black, black throated blue warbler. And this was the this is the kind of image like if you had to say Scott what is like your songbird photography look like, I have um, one style that's really really close that I love to shoot with a shallow depth of field and I like to have the head in focus and everything else just just like melt away after that, and then I have another uh, style that I like where it really shows the context of the bird 
in its native habitat. So this is a eastern hemlock, which is a, a very important tree. I'm also a native plant nerd, um, but it's a very important tree to, to this part of our ecosystems. And these birds really love the hemlock. So uh, the black and whites, the black-throated greens, black-throated blues, um, Blackburnian warblers, they all really depend on this tree for survival. And if this tree didn't exist, these birds would have a much tougher time. You'll see them in spruce and some other types of evergreen, but they really love um, this eastern hemlock. So yeah, I, I, I just remembered when I was talking about habitat that I posted this the other day and I thought that's a really good example of what I love to do is just take the bird and then also show it in its native habitat where it belongs. And uh, so that one, that one works for me. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, I know, you know, it's, I love that you do that too. I really, I think that's part of the reason I'm drawn to your work. I love the, everybody loves the portraits, right? We've talked about it before. It's always fun. It's fun when you're photographing to get those portraits because you want all that detail and all that, you know, but you know, a portrait doesn't necessarily tell a lot of a story unless it's, you know, some behavior or something. Right. Yep. But, um, but those more um, habitat type photos, wildscapes, whatever you want to call them, I yep. think, they, I'm drawn to those more and more, and I find myself trying to challenge myself to do more of that type of photography too, regardless of the subject, right? Um, yeah. Because I think it just tells more of a story. But I, I love how you do that. I think it's it's cool that you don't have a style, and I think it's cool that you really try to mix it up and do a little bit of both. Um, and I also like the way you play with light a lot too. I that's you know I love playing with light, and yeah. you you've you got a lot of different examples of different types of light: side light, backlight you know, front light, dull light, no light, you know what I mean? It's just, you, you, yep. you run the gamut. You don't, you can tell you're not a photographer that is just a sunny day photographer. You know what I mean? No, I don't. It's funny if, if when I, um, when, when people ask me for like advice, like what's the number one, like give me one piece of advice. There's a lot of advice, but, but probably the biggest one is, um, light. It's just, if you just focus on light and if, if you just, when, when the light is bad, just don't even bother practice, scout, look for locations to shoot, like go out and do other stuff, hike and look around, but utilize um, the first couple minutes, you know, of, of daylight, the first 20, 30 minutes is, is ideal. Overcast days you could shoot in with songbirds. A lot of people, you know, run away. They think, oh, the clouds are out. There's not enough light, but people really get um, sometimes obsessed with, I don't have enough light to shoot. And it does require, it does require some, some hit and miss you aren't going to get as many sharp photos when right. you're down when your shutter speed starts getting down to a you know a hundredth of a second i actually um you guys had mentioned uh, i do some youtube stuff so on my youtube channel i put out almost exclusively videos about birds but also a little bit about some other wildlife but i did a, a video recently about slower shutter speeds and how you know don't be afraid of it, it you can get down i i think i could pull one up this image here this warbler is about three inches tall it was shot in the first 15 minutes of daylight. Um, you could see a little bit of foreground up there, the like yellow, which is kind of mimicked in the bird's throat because it's a common yellow throat. And then the background's got these really soft tones back there. This was shot at a hundredth of a second. And mm -hmm. I'm telling you, 90% of bird photographers would say, oh, you can't shoot a two inch songbird at a hundredth of a second. Like it's just too slow. You've got a 500 millimeter lens on a crop sensor. so. You know, you got to shoot five hundredth of a second, maybe a thousandth of a second to get a sharp image. And, um, you know, to me, it's not always just about how sharp can I get the subject? It's it's what kind of mood can I create? And with birds, one of the things that's happened is if you've got direct light, like hard sunlight, we shoot in a lot of sticks. 
So what you end up with is you end up with shadows everywhere, shadows on other sticks, you know, shadows coming across the berg. And there's nothing real flattering about that. You wouldn't open up, you know, a, a glamour magazine and see the subject with shadows all over them unless it was something very artistic and intentional. So um, you get much softer light to deal with in the early morning and even overcast days. So yeah, uh, light is probably the biggest advice I would give to people is just really, really focus on the light that you're working in and experiment with the animals, like experiment with your subjects and see what they do and watch the behavior and you can photograph them. But when it's time to print something or show it off, start to really, really focus on the light. Yeah, I think that's a good piece of advice. Like <clears throat> we talk about it all the time. It, that's that's what separates a snapshot from an artistic image. Yeah, is just that light play. Yep. You know, and and like Jason said, you do it in so many different ways. And you know, even with the big game, it's it's a little bit more difficult to do because they're not moving as much as the birds are, and you know that can be a positive or negative. Birds are changing their light, changing the scene all the time, where an elk standing in a meadow is an elk standing in the meadow, and you've got to yep. make the change if you want to make it. Yep. So that is a little bit more difficult. I would say, like, with big game, it, it always seems to me, and again, this is just me, like, from a different perspective, it seems easier but harder. So easier in the sense that, okay, there's a big elk. Like, if you can't shoot a big elk, like if you can't focus and hit the button, then you, you know, you're in the wrong hobby, or you're yeah, doing the wrong right. profession. So, so <laughs> with birds, that's actually can be a challenge. I mean, you, you talk to some bird photographers, like it's hard to just sometimes get them in there because they're, they're bouncing around and they're moving all over to your point. How do you make, how do you make that elk special? Like, how do you make it different? How do you make it beautiful? Because the challenge may not be to acquire focus and hit the button as much as it is. Okay. What do I see artistically? Like, how do I envision this? And how do I, okay, now I need to move a little bit because I want to include this or I want to include that. Uh, how do I change my, my position? Um, and I think, honestly, I think it can, while the subject may be easier to shoot, I think it can be more difficult to make it special um, mm -hmm. because you may not have an opportunity. If the thing is where the thing is, then it's now it becomes up to you. Like to your point, Ron, the bird may move around and give you five or 10 different looks before it decides to fly away. The elk may only give you the one and you got to figure out what right. to do with it. But back to your point though, I was, uh, I just got a, a red helium and I was out trying to practice with that a little bit. And I had two golden eye that were feeding and I could stand there and film an elk or a moose or a deer all day long. No problem. Everything's going to be sharp. No problem at all. But, these golden eye, I mean, they were up and then they were back down underwater, back down to get another bite and getting them coming up out of the water. You know, the, the focal plane, you had to cheat a little bit, shoot it a little deeper than you probably would want to just because you don't know exactly where they're going to come back up. You can guess based on where they did the last three times, but it uh, begins to be a lot more difficult. So the shots that you see of, you know, like a merganser coming out of the water with, say a, a crayfish, something like that. There is an art just to being able to track that bird and to, uh, you know, dictate or predict that behavior where they're going to come up so that you can even have it in frame, especially with a long lens. Yeah. You know, you, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. Real, 
Go ahead, Jason. Go Sorry, ahead, real Jason. quick, guys. It's just funny because the whole time you were saying that very thing, Scott, I was actually thinking the same thing in reverse again. You know, I feel like I can I can do quite a bit. I can move around an elk. I can try to get back di different backdrops, different scenarios, whatever. But I'll tell you a quick story. I was out shooting elk this last year, and I actually had a stiller jay land by me. And um, he didn't stay very long. He was in some different scenarios. It was, the elk was slow. And I thought, ah, I'm, I'm going to try to photograph this guy, right? Well, I, I went to try to get him and get focused. And, you know, with elk, you kind of can take your time and get what you need. I, I mean, I was able to get on him, but I could never get a good photo. I could never get the light good. I could never get the shadows out of the way. I could never get... And I just kind of finally just like gave up and was like, all right, back to elk. You know, I can I can tell this is a species or something I'm gonna have to like spend time doing. Yep. And right now I'm not gonna mess with it. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. kind of funny how you it, it's just all perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah, I you probably like I wouldn't know the first thing about what an elk is gonna do next or what to expect. You know, um, I I think one of the things after you figure out some of the basics. Um, of you know camera and light and composition and all that other stuff. Uh, as wildlife photographers, when you know your subjects and you know the behavior, and I can tell you, you know, I can tell you duck from duck, how they will probably act. Right. Some ducks do this, some ducks do that. And it's more than just diving or dabbling. I mean, there are some ducks that are tend to be more skittish and some that are very approachable. And the same thing with, with, with songbirds, you know, 27 species of warblers we have here. And while most of them are similar, they're all different. They all behave a little differently. So, you know, uh, I'll, I'll go out with somebody and I'll hear a, a Blackburnian warbler or something like that. And, you know, I'm th I am I say that's a Blackburnian warbler. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I've never shot one before. And I say, well, you're, you're probably not going to. because uh, It's going <laughs> to stay up at the top of that tree <laughs> and it's not coming down because it's the middle of June and it's breeding and its nest is all the way up there. So if you mm -hmm. want to shoot a Blackburnian warbler, you know, migration when it's moving and it's not on a territory is probably a better time or, you know, you get lucky and you catch it on territory at eye level somehow. But yeah, it, bird behavior, animal behavior, whatever it is, that predictive, being able to kind of say like, okay, this is what I can get from this species. And sometimes knowing where they're going to go or what they're going to do, uh, especially with, like you guys mentioned, waterfowl. Mm -hmm. you know, the easiest way for me to shoot waterfowl is not to ever see a duck and go down and shoot it. I always go around the corner. I mean, it, it, the best secret I can give somebody with, with ducks is go around the corner, find a cove, mm -hmm. get around the corner of the cove so they don't see you, put a blind up, lay down at the shoreline, and get a pillow, because you're just and then you just wait them out. And eventually, right. I was out yesterday, and eventually I had four different species of ducks come within 20, 30 feet, and I got nine or 10 really nice images that I liked out of it. And for, you know, an hour session, that's pretty, that's really good for me. Um, but there's plenty of days mm -hmm. I go down to that same spot or spot like that and set up the blind and sit inside and nothing, you know, nothing swims <laughs> by. So uh, I think the number one attribute for, for bird photographers and probably for most wildlife photographers sometimes is patience because you really, it really is a waiting game. You can go somewhere and well, there's supposed to be elk here. They're, they're always here. There's, there's just nothing. Right. You wait, you wait, and you wait, and you wait, or you look, and you drive, and you look, and you drive, and then all of a sudden, there's that, there's the one, you know, right where you needed them, and, and, it, it, and it pans out, but a lot of, uh, a lot of photographers just don't have that patience. They just, if you don't have the patience to wait, and if you don't enjoy it, uh, you guys are probably outdoorsmen, I'm guessing, 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's part of your DNA is, is to just appreciate nature and be outside. And if, you know, if you don't see the, the fox or the elk or the wolf, you still had a good day. You were still outside, still enjoying nature. And, and that's, that's a big part of it is, you know, even a bad day of, of wildlife photography is normally still a really good day and a lot better than sitting on the couch. Absolutely. Well said. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's not much whining in wildlife <laughs> photography. There's really nothing to complain about. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. So, so that being said, were you, were you an outdoorsman? I mean, you said you got your start with photography when you, that, that first warbler. Yeah. But were you an I, outdoorsman I never, before that? No, I never grew up in a family, um, of hunters or fishermen or anything like that. I, I was a, I was a jock. I was a basketball player in college and, um, I coached uh, my kids. You guys, I, I don't know if you have kids, but mm-hmm. a lot of work. I had four boys, so there was not a lot of free time to do anything. <laughs> um, so this, this really did, I always had an appreciation of nature. I can remember even as a kid, I can remember having a bird book with just eggs in it. And I would go out and look for bird eggs as like a four-year-old. I'd just be out, you know, back in our day, you just, you, the parent opened the door and said, come back right. when, when the sun comes down. So you just went out and played in the field or did whatever. And that's what I did. I would just go out and explore and explore nature. So I, I think, you know, in my DNA, there's a little bit of that, but um, I was not raised in that environment. So this has been a, a real, a, almost a change of, of lifestyle for me in a lot of ways. Like I think as I got a little older, you know, you start to appreciate it. You realize, you know, you don't know how many more decades or years you got left. And, and you start to, and not only do you appreciate nature, but you start to realize how fragile it is. Because just in our lifetime, you know, we've seen, uh, especially out here in, in some of these suburban areas where it used to be, where I live right now was all cornfields 20 years ago. I mean, there wasn't a house here. And mm-hmm. now there's 10,000 townhouses just every farm field that, that can be bought and converted to a shopping mall or a house. And it, you, you start to get appreciation that, you know, we, that it's fragile and we're lucky to have it in our lifetime. And that I don't know how many more generations are going to appreciate some of the birds that I'm looking at right now will not be here in 20, 30 years. They, they just, they'll be, they'll be so rare or as a species in, in 40 or 50 years, it, it could literally be extinct. So uh, some of these birds that I'm photographing may not be here for my my grandchildren, which is pretty sad. Yep, that's a tough pill to swallow when you when you look at it and think about it that way. But the loss of habitat alone is and and yep. to so many factors, we don't have as many people moving in, or the big urban sprawl in Wyoming. But wind farms are our nemesis, or the birds' nemesis here yep. in Wyoming. The raptors, and you know, they don't. They displace grouse. They don't affect them the same way that they affect raptors who, you know, have accidents fly into the the turbines. But bats, you, th- you think about the importance of bats as far as insect control or as far as their place in the in the food chain and the ecosystem. And their bats are hammered by wind turbines. Wow because they fly out in, in mass a lot of times. And, and if they fly through those areas and they didn't take that into consideration, you know, when they first started building these giant wind farms, bats suffer probably more than any other species. Yeah. 
It's, but when you, yeah, I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but yeah, it's well, it, it's you know, it's a reality. It, it is a sad mm-hmm. reality that, um, and and I don't know what I don't know what the answer is. I mean, conservation is a big part of it, and um, you know, kind of protecting land is a big part of it. We are very lucky in Pennsylvania. I'll tell you, we have we have a great uh, game land system mm-hmm. here. So there are large swaths of Pennsylvania that are protected, and and that's great. And you know, I I mentioned I'm not a hunter. I I I can't like I'm just not wired to hunt. Um, I understand the importance of population control, and I also have a, a great appreciation for what that has done for our state. Because without hunters, that land is not protected. I can tell you that right now. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, there there is a, a I guess an appreciation for conservation in general which is something that I think photographers and, and people that appreciate wildlife in general, even birders and also hunters share, which is this effort to conserve land and try to keep it pure, maybe for different reasons, but, but you know, the goal is still the same. And uh, I think I'm very fortunate that in Pennsylvania, at least we still have a lot of protected land, even though we are, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania is just one from Philadelphia up to where I live, it's it's pretty much just city after city, suburb after suburb. It's there's not a lot in between. There's some nice park systems here and there, but once you get out of the uh, suburban areas and you get north, where you mentioned in, in the Poconos mm-hmm. earlier, that's it's really nice nice country up there, and it's it's pretty well protected. So it's it's nice to go up there and shoot a lot. Yeah, it was. I was actually pleasantly surprised when I got up there and and found out you know just how rural that area was that part of the state anyway in a, in a yeah, state that, that does have the big cities it, it's an interesting area that, um they they don't like outsiders <laughs> it is very typical of people who move out in the woods man they don't you you pull in the wrong driveway and it, you know it's somebody's coming out looking like what the hell are you doing out here because yeah. i drive around <laughs> up there looking for birds sometimes and looking for new areas and yeah uh, you got to be careful <laughs> those people right. moved up there and bought 40 acres for a reason and they don't just walk outside just to say hi, they walk out with a shotgun. Yeah, them. yeah, they yeah, they're coming out to let you know that you're not welcome. Right. Yeah, there's no apple pie being served on that. Yeah. <laughs> just a quick word from our sponsors. The first sponsor that I'm going to include is Cold Case Gear. Uh, it's a Colorado company, and they make basically insulated cell phone cases. However, these cases are. Uh, advantageous to our audience because they can also be used for camera batteries during the cold weather and extend the life of your smaller batteries they'll fit the larger batteries for the the pro model cameras but you can fit multiple smaller batteries in these cold cases and then put them inside there they are insulated and you can check them out at coldcasegear.com and uh, it, it is a great product to extend the life of your camera batteries during the winter months. So another sponsor, which we talk about all the time, and we've got a new deal with these guys. We have uh, Precision Camera. Used camera business is really good right now. And I said, well, maybe there's some sort of promotion we can do with that. And he's like, yeah, as a matter of fact, we're always looking for good used camera equipment. And they do a lot of little events around their Texas area. But I said, you know, Wildland Exposed has a, nationwide audience and maybe there's people out there that want to sell some gear it's super easy to do on their website you can just go to uh, i think it's i looked at it this morning i used gear you click on that and then from there you can get an estimate so you can list what you have 
for sale. So whatever camera body, whatever lenses, whatever, whatever. And you have to tell them what kind of condition it is in. And once you do that, it'll tell you what you can expect to get when you submit it to the website. Then what you do is you send your equipment down there and they verify that the way you rated it, the, the quality, the, the shape it was in was equal to what you said it was on the website. Once all that's done, then they just send you a check in the mail, which is pretty cool. And this promotion for this particular quarter is going to be any wild and exposed listener that sends their stuff in and wants to get some cash is going to get 10% more than what they would normally pay. So that's kind of cool. I mean, you, you turn in a camera, let's, you know, we all use these pretty high end bodies, right? So let's say you turned in a one DX and let's, these are just, I have no idea what they pay for it, but let's say they pay a thousand bucks. That's a hundred dollars. That's not mm -hmm. too bad. Not too shabby. So the way yeah. you get that is you go into the website and if you look, when you're rating all your equipment, there was one other little section near the bottom that says, tell me more. And when you go to that section, you just type in wild and exposed. So that's the way you're going to capitalize on this sort of, or this particular promotion. Yeah. And it's not tell me more. It says more information. So if you want, if you just type in there wild and exposed, you're going to get an extra 10%, which is pretty awesome. And if you're in the market for new gear, it's a good opportunity to trade it and not have to go through the hassle of selling individual components as well and, and get a little bit more for it. Most of the time you're going to get a little bit more if you sell it on your own, but I never do. I um, always trade my gear in and then just go for and do it exactly what you said. I just apply it towards the next whatever new thing it's out there. Lastly... We have, so in this particular podcast that you are listening to, we, we talked about the opportunity to jump on some of the workshops that we are either promoting for somebody else or some of our own. And we have two bear trips planned for this coming year. There's one spring trip and then there's one fall trip. And it's all Alaska coastal brown bears. That's going to be going to different places just because of the time of year. But we have one spot that opened up in our first trip because that filled up really fast but we had a a couple that has a family emergency come up and only one of them is going to be able to go so we had a second spot or one spot open up on that trip and then the fall trip we haven't advertised that much but there's actually four spots available there so if you're interested hit up the show notes for this particular podcast and I'll have a link to the workshops. And once you go to that link, you can click on either one, read about it. And then if you're interested, there's a place to call Dave at AK Adventures and get yourself signed up. He'll tell you all the particulars and what you got to do. And then you can read about what we're going to do and some of the things you might see. And then also see and photograph. And then also you'll know what to bring and that sort of thing. Yeah, and we'll, we'll all be staying on a boat. We'll have an opportunity to talk about your gear, help set your gear up, um, talk about adventures in the field, you know, each day after, after the return, Mike is going to be on the boat. And if you are looking to do some video, there's nobody better to, to pick his brain and, uh, and learn a little bit more, kind of deepen your wealth of knowledge while you're on that trip. The first trip is, uh, more spring bears so you're looking at 
sows and cubs a little bit more than you would be on the second trip and the second trip would be fishing bears so it's a great opportunity to get some quality images spend some good time in the field uh, but also you know just experience Alaska in a way that most people don't have the opportunity to get away from society for a few days and that never that never disappoints yeah and this boat is pretty awesome it's got everything you could want plenty of space to set up your stuff and the food is really good the the people that run the boat the captain and his his crew are super awesome people and it's just amazing to be able to be out there and the cool thing too is if you go to a place and it's not very good no problem you just pull up the anchor and head on to the next spot so it's it's kind of cool to have that flexibility and dave who runs those tours all year long he is totally dialed in with that whole area so if for some reason uh, uh on the fish running stuff or the the bears fishing stuff if if there aren't fish at this particular river chances are there might be just down the down the way a bit and he'll know exactly where to go so i expect it to be really really busy the spring trip man there's just so many different things it's pretty unusual to go out that early um, because it is fairly early in the schedule but drew had you know everybody knows drew from the podcast drew uh, guided the same time last year he had the most fun on this trip than any other trip that he's done in the spring just because of the you know and you know conditions are going to change and years are going to change but they saw wolves they saw bears they had uh, sows with cubs they had big males they had all kinds of activity so should be a good one absolutely let's get back to the podcast scott let's get back to your so you kind of made the transition and i don't know exactly how long ago you started kind of going to some of this youtube format and you the reason that i wanted to have you on or one of the reasons that i wanted to have you on was to kind of talk about that because it there are far too many people in this industry that take themselves way too seriously and if i when i look at your content that's what i like about it and and enjoy about it is there's just there's so much fun to be had i mean Michael and I were on a trip in Alaska and that's basically how I got invited to be a part of the podcast was I was just a smart ass the whole time. We were just, we had fun. Yeah, I know. It's hard. (laughs) It's hard to believe. Right. Right. But, um, that, yeah, that's kind of what led him to believe it might be fun to, to do this project together. And, and, uh, when I look at your content, I see a lot of the same. For instance, you don't have to go very far back to see the Red Hill, the Red Hill Hawk Drive uh, <laughs> video clip on your Instagram. So la- yeah, last year, I, I so you know I was doing a lot of photography and in the YouTube channel when I first <clears throat> when I first rolled it out, it was an interview format. I was basically just interviewing people and talking to them, and it, it was actually something I enjoyed doing. I wanted to become a better host. I wanted to kind of learn that format. Here's what I learned with it, with YouTube. Nobody's going to sit and watch an hour-long interview with anybody. I don't care how good of a photographer you are. So the format was too long. It was an hour. And I still do the shows, but I don't do them as often. And now I've had, I figured out if, if I want to grow the channel and get more viewers, it's, it's great to have something you just like doing. So if I just liked doing the, the video, the live one-hour interviews, that's great. If nobody watches it, 
kind of like what's the point and i don't want so there's this middle ground of like well i don't want to sacrifice i don't want to sell out just for views um i've always i kind of watch other a lot of you know whatever content but i watch youtube videos and if i put out a youtube video i always tell people if i put out a youtube video tomorrow that said like the nikon 400 millimeter lens is the greatest wildlife lens in the world and you know people would watch it because it's you know it's catchy it's clickbaity it's t 10 minutes long and people like gear reviews they like to you know read about gadgets and tech they don't like to listen to somebody else tell their story all the time so mm. i figured i had to come up with some kind of a compromise so i've been doing more of these shorter pieces on my youtube show and they might just be about anything wildlife related and then on instagram where i was just posting pictures for a long time but i i i do like to laugh a lot and i've got kind of a like a snarky sarcastic sense of humor so I thought, I, I'm like I'm 50 years old. I, it's life's too short. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put out some funny stuff and see if people like it. So, yeah, I just started doing these reels where I would just kind of spoof stuff and make fun of stuff. And I have a few more <laughs> that I recorded. Um, some of them are easy to make, but it's it's actually incredibly hard. I, I like to play more than one character, so I'll <laughs> I'll do a reel where I'm more than one person, and it's it's actually really not not easy because you have to like tape yourself and think what the other person's saying and then you have to like splice it together and it takes like a couple hours to do these you know one minute reels on instagram right. so i've enjoyed doing it though and people enjoy it the the my followers have you know said how much they they like it i'm sure every now and then because i i can be a little sarcastic i'm sure i do upset some people but you know I think ah, fun. Such, <laughs> is, such is life yeah 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 i can't make everybody happy i guess no nope. <laughs> No, but that's that's definitely one of the things that I enjoy about your Instagram feed is you, you kind of get that get a little laugh and then you get to see some real quality quality work. Now, are you doing um, workshops now as well? You know, it's it's interesting. I do very few, um, and I a couple of years ago, it is not easy to make money in wildlife photography. I will tell you that right now. It's an expensive hobby, and it's as you guys probably know there's very little return on investment. Right. And uh, I, I actually think there's a concept out there. I was going to record a video. I, I have a lot of video ideas in my head and I have to kind of like flesh them out and figure out how I'm going to do them. Mm -hmm. But uh, I wanted to put a video out there for people that says, here's how you make money in wildlife photography. With the theme kind of being you don't. It's just right, if, right. if you think you're going to quit your day job and become a full-time wildlife photographer because your friends on Facebook tell you you should be on National Geographic, it's <laughs> probably not a good career move. Because your mom and your sister probably yep. don't know what great wildlife photography is. They also don't know that there is now, whereas 20 years ago, in the early days of digital or film, there was only a handful of really talented people taking the time to do this. Right now, you have, I am going to guess, 100,000 to 500,000 people that would call themselves wildlife photographers, At which least, means you're yeah. competing against a giant market of images and as as good as you are as a photographer and as good as I, I think I might be as a photographer anybody with a camera can capture a good image given the right place in the right time you can capture an award-winning image the first day you put a camera in your hand if if an eagle grabs a rabbit and a fox still latched onto it and the thing takes off in front of you and you manage to get that picture you're viral like you you're 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 an all-star but that's not reality for most people. And it takes, you know, years and years and years to get good. 
and there's hundreds of thousands of people doing it. And people are like, well, you're, you're a really good photographer. You, you must sell a lot of prints. No, I don't. And the reason is because I have 40,000 followers on Instagram, but guess what? They all do the same thing. Who the hell wants to put my picture on their wall when they can put their picture on their wall? Mm -hmm, I'm not, I'm not producing to an audience that it, that is interested in buying product. I'm producing for an audience that is interested in creating the project or creating the, the object. So it's not a, it's not a real thing. So yeah, I sell prints, but not like, I mean, I don't have stacks of prints back here that I'm back here signing and shipping out every day. And for the photographers, by the way, who have figured that out, God bless them because it is very, very difficult and um, it can be done. You can make money selling prints, but it is very, very, very difficult. And the strategy is probably much different than just, I'm going to be good on social media. You really have to go out and create and show people because it's, sometimes it's, you have to see it in a frame and sell it to somebody that is a consumer, not somebody that's making their own. So yeah, I do a, a few workshops a year. Um, I thought when I started doing it, like, hey, I'll make money doing this. It'll help pay for my gear. <clears throat> and what I found is I'm so protective of this area that I was, I was I, I, I felt like I was exploiting it. Like, okay, I've got a great spot for Canada warblers and golden winged warblers. Well, guess what? I just told Bob down the street where to go to photograph Canada warblers. And it's, there's not a lot of good spots to get them. So now Bob told Tom and Sally... Tom and Sally didn't take my workshop, but they're up in the same spot. Now I go up there next year and I got three people in the spot that used to have nobody. And once I felt like that was uh, a potential and I am freakishly paranoid about that kind of stuff. Um, I only now do workshops for people from out of state. So if somebody's out of state, uh, I run a subscription site. So people that are interested in learning how to edit and do bird photography, it's specific for bird photography. Um, they will, I will allow workshops for those people because I trust them. I know them. They're out of state. I don't have to worry about that. And I'll take them out for a day or two and, you know, I'll do a workshop like that. But I don't really advertise it anymore. I just do kind of word of mouth and with this little Patreon community that I have, I'll, I'll, I'll give them an open invite and I'll do three or four in the spring and maybe one or two in the fall. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't do a lot. Yeah. I feel your pain there, especially with grouse. I used to take people out for grouse, but then it's not, it, we're always on private land. So it wasn't something that I initially thought would be an issue, but then had people coming back and either not asking or bugging the, the landowner that I had, you know, developed a relationship with. Yep. And they don't want to be bothered. They've got plenty to do. They let me and that's yep. basically it. But now you've got people knocking on their door and that kind of thing. And, and uh, so it, it has become an issue and it's something that I've kind of backed off of as well, which is yeah. too bad because I, yeah, I, I would love for everybody to see the sage grouse lick because yep. it quickly becomes uh, something that people find a passion for. And we need as many advocates for them right now as we can. Yeah. What were you going to yeah, say? It's, I'm sorry. It's, it's it's, it's just really tough. You know, you're in this position where you, you have the knowledge. And, and I, like I said, I, I have a lot of people that have never seen these species of warblers. And, you know, it's really cool to see somebody's eyes light up and, and get like all excited and look at the back of their camera. They're like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I've never seen an oven bird before. I've never seen a black-throated green warbler before. And, and um, you know, and I'm able to get those birds. I know exactly where they are. I know how they behave. I could, I could go out there, you know, almost at any time in the spring or summer and find 
uh, these warblers form or, or other songbirds as well. Um, but again, it's like this, it's like this double-edged sword. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I love showing people this stuff and, you know, I don't mind making a little bit of side money. I have a full-time job, but I don't mind making a little bit of side money because this expensive isn't or this equipment isn't cheap. And, um, but yeah, it is, it is tough. It is tough to, to deal with that side of it. So yeah, the, when you look at the whole premise of, of wildlife photography, whether it's, you know, I can make money doing workshops, I can make money doing prints, uh, you can make money teaching. And that's actually what I've tried to start focusing on is more online content, um, more where I can teach classes. So in the future, I'm looking at setting up some classes where, you know, it's virtual and it's, ba it's honestly, it's based more around editing mm -hmm. and Photoshop than it is around taking people out to see the birds. It's, it's around people who are figuring out that they can find how to fine tune an image. I think one of the big missing components, especially for, for birds, um, a lot of people can get a decent looking shot in camera, but they just don't know how to polish it. And if I showed you some of the stuff in camera, you'd be like, well, that guy's not very good. Um, and and it, it, it's your comfort level with editing. Some people want to present like a documentation style, which is very lightly edited, couple tweaks here and there, exposure and all that. And then you got people creating digital art and we're all considering ourselves the same genre. We're all wildlife photographers, but we're doing it completely different. I'm somewhere in the middle of like documentation and digital art. I don't, I don't add butterflies to my photos landing on, you know, like the deer's nose because I've seen people that do that kind of stuff. But if there's a branch in the middle of my picture that looks ugly, I'll just clone it out. I'll just remove it in Photoshop. Mm -hmm. And I'm very honest with people about that. I don't pretend to take an unedited image. The danger is that when you want to enter contests and things like that, you can't do that. So I always try to be honest with people. If anybody asks me, I'm, I don't hide it. I say, oh, yeah, sure. I actually teach people how to do it. I mean, I can't hide it. I, I teach people how to do this mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but with birds, it, it, it's a little bit more demanding because there's a lot of sticks. There's a lot of weird leaves in there. There's a lot of, you know, sometimes on the sticks themselves, there's stuff. And just learning how to clean that stuff up and polish it and play with the light a little bit and highlight this area and darken this area. Um, I think that it's a skill. And I think it can... A lot of people would be surprised at a lot of photographers what the original image looked like and what that finished product looked like. Yeah, it's the same thing, but it it looks a lot better when you polish it up. Every now and then you'll get comments on, or I'll get comments on my photos that, that they'll say something like, man, I'd sure like to see the raw image of that. You know what I mean? And it's the insinuation there is like, wow, that's super edited or something, right? You know, and it's like, yeah. well, you know, I'm not, I never claim to not edit my photos to your point. I'm probably a lot like you. I don't add things. I don't. I try to keep it as real as looking as possible. What I was seeing, I like to give it a little extra color saturation, maybe. Um, but I but I have no problem with taking a annoying stick or something that's distracting from the subject out of the image either. You know what I mean? So I don't but, know yeah. how you guys feel. I do have a pet peeve. It's um, um, and if you guys do this, I, I I'm sorry. Sky replacement is a thing for me though. No. Yeah, like when you when somebody takes a blue sky. And then they just hit that button, the new button. There's a new button in Photoshop, sky yeah. replacement. And they just pick a sky and they put it in there. Right. But it's not that they do it. It's that they act like they didn't. Right. No. It's, we when, can... they, it's when somebody says, hey, did you did you composite that? In photography, we'd call that like a composite. Did you composite that? And they're like, no, that's how it looked. And, and the animals in focus and the clouds that are eight miles away are also in focus. You, you can't. That, or 30 can't miles away. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can't be at. There's no f one hundred. Like you can't you can't stop your lens down enough to get the clouds in focus and the bird in focus. I, I know how cameras work, but um, yeah, it, that's a that's a pet peeve of mine. I will tell you, I don't do any sky replacements. I'll I'll saturate skies. You know, I'll, I'll color them and maybe even hue like a little bit. If if there's some pinks and purples, sometimes I'll try to bring those out, especially. But um, when somebody just takes a blue sky and sticks in another sky, um, and denies it. Right. And that's that's kind mm -hmm. of a thing for me. <laughs> I think that's a little bit different for wildlife photographers than it is for landscape photographers, because the landscape photographer, not only do they replace the sky, but they also focus stack. So they're taking, you know, 16 or 20 images throughout the scene. The scene's not moving. 16 or 20 images throughout the scene. So everything's in focus. Again, it's it's not F100, but the whole scene all the way through, all the way to the horizons in focus. And then yeah. you're not going to have the perfect sky at every location that you go to. So you know that some of that is going on. Now, is it possible that that sky would be at that location? Absolutely. And I don't, exactly like you said, I don't have a problem with people doing that necessarily as long as they're truthful about it. And, you know, the images or the contests, excuse me, that you referenced they're going to find that out anyway, because you have to send your raw image if requested. They're going to know exactly how much you cropped it. You know, that that's my pet peeve is I'm standing next to somebody and we're shooting the same wolves. And now these guys are posting an image of a wolf that looks like it was shot at, you know, 20 yards. And I know that thing was 600 yards away. So I know that right. image that's posted is probably 30 pixels wide. And if you did oh, yeah. anything but Instagram. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I did a show. I did a, uh, on my YouTube channel, I did a thing about Instagram and what's good and what's bad about it. And, and the, one of the, the, probably the worst thing, not a lot of people realize Instagram is a, a 1080p format mm -hmm. in width. So you can literally crop an image to 10,000 pixels, which is nothing. I mean, you print 10,000 pixels, you're, you're lucky to get five inches out of it. So, um, or I, I said 10,000, 1,000 1, pixels. 1, so at 1,000 pixels, you can, it's like a three to five inch print. And people, you know, they, they will, they'll, they'll crop an image down to, to just nothing. And, and on an iPhone, when you're just glancing at it, it can actually look decent. Mm -hmm. I did a, an experiment one time where I took an image and I cropped it down to 1080 and I posted it and then I took the same image and I posted it in its original format and I did it at like a week apart from each other and you couldn't even really tell it was the same picture because the bird was really small in one and it was cropped tight in the other and I just wanted to see which one people would like more and it was about it was about even but they liked the 1080p just as much if not more than the other one mm -hmm. So the lesson was like, yeah, you can crop hard <laughs> if you're posting to Instagram because it's viewed on a small screen and nobody sees it, but it's, it's kind of a ridiculous thing to think, you know, you're going to crop down to 800 or a thousand pixels and consider that a photograph these days. That's right. It's, it's just not even a printable. You can, you couldn't even put that in a magazine, you know, in a small little box in a magazine, it would probably look terrible. No, so, it's one of those wallets. Yeah, it's, tough. it's one of those wallets you used to give your friends from school, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's about all you can get out of it. Two by three. Yep. So yeah. talking about your teaching, Jason and I, when we were talking about having you on the podcast, 
one of the things that we notice is you do some work with uh, Topaz. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. So we, so I, I really enjoy them. Uh, the software is great. Uh, I'm going to do a, I'm going to try to get my hands on a copy of a couple other pieces of software. I want to do a comparison uh, to some third-party softwares. But for the last, I think, two years, I, I just don't do any other noise reduction, um, sharpening. And it's not, it's not a perfect piece of software. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not like, yeah, oh, yeah, it's, you just click it, all the noise goes away, it's sharp. But it's, it's as close as I can find. And um, there were some people, I, I have some friends that were like, oh, I don't know why you, you know, Topaz, and I don't, I don't use that in my workflow. And I said, well, how do you do it? Well, I create, I go into Photoshop and I, I make a noise reduction layer and then I go into uh, make another layers. layer and I do a sharpen layer and then I take them back in and then I mask it in and I do all that. I said, how long does it take you to do that sharpening process? They said, uh, about 15 minutes. I said, well, in the time we've had this two minute conversation, I just ran denoise and I ran two files through it because it literally just, it's smart. It figures out subject and background. It, it almost always nails it. It almost always gets the subject right. It almost always gets the background right. And it applies, uh, whether you're using denoise or sharpen, uh, my theory is that it's the same engine behind both because mm -hmm. denoise will actually remove the noise and sharpen a little bit, and sharpen will actually sharpen and remove some of the noise. I think it's just uh, the same algorithm tweaked for each piece of software. But I, I run it almost on every piece of, of, even an image I was editing some ducks yesterday and I shot him at pretty low ISO. I think I shot him at like 200. And I ran him through denoise just because they looked better at the end. They, whatever little bit of noise was in there, it got rid of. I didn't apply it heavy, and it, it sharpened them uh, as denoise does. It adds just a, a little bit of sharpening. Um, so I find it's just quick and easy. When I go to print, um, I take a little bit more time, and maybe I, I, maybe I would mask something. But um, for social media, I'm not going to spend 30 or 40 minutes editing one file just to post it on Instagram or Facebook or, you know, put it on my website. Right. Um, when viewed at that size, it's just, you know, if I'm printing big, if I was printing like 36 inches, something like that, then I go back to every file and I actually just re-edit it because it, you do need to take a little bit more time. But even on those files, I'll use, I'll use Topaz, even Gigapixel. I've, I've run some image, some smaller images that I wanted to upsize. Uh, and I've used that to upsize images and it works really, really well. It's good stuff. Yeah, it is. And I don't know. Have you used the uh, the video end of that yet? I I played with it. I don't do a lot of video. Um, one one of the concerns I heard from people is it's extremely slow. And oh, so I, I ran a I ran like a one minute piece of software through there, and I did it two ways. I did one. They have a slow motion feature, so it takes you know whatever. Let's say you've got thirty frames. Um, a second so you have 300 frames well to slow it down it I, I think what it does is it it doubles the frame so it gives you 600 mm -hmm. and then in between each frame it interpolates what should be there so basically it adds a frame and when I when I ran the software and something quick moving um, it did slow it down you could see some of the artifacts because the thing was moving so fast the software couldn't keep up but in a slow when it was moving slowly it was really pretty good like it actually it actually created a slow-mo image by interpolating, I think, and sticking in the frames in between to create more frames. Um, and then I ran it to upsize it. So I basically took a smaller file and I made a high-def file out of it. 
And again, because it's working, it's working every frame one at a time. So if you've got a 20 minute clip, you've got thousands of frames there and it literally has to go through every frame and make that bigger and then go to the next frame and make that bigger. Mm -hmm. So I have heard people complain about the amount of time that that process takes, but there's no other way to do it. Like if you're going to upsize an image, you have to go through every frame and upsize every single frame. Yeah, you can't. Um, you can't I complain did it, about it, it that. Good. Taking time because when you even jump on your machine and try to edit, and and especially now we're we're filming with 8K uh, with some of these cameras. If you're trying to upsize a 4K to 8K, that's going to bog down your computer just to try to play it. Yeah. So there, yep. you know, that's definitely one of those processes you want to leave for. Hey, just set it and forget it, and go go to bed. Wake up in the morning, yep. see where you're at. Yep. Yeah, I've I've done a little bit of video. I don't do I don't do a lot. I just bought a. Um, well, hopefully, I'll get it. My this Z9 that I ordered mm -hmm. hopefully will come in sometime this year, and um, the Z6 that I I'm actually use as a webcam. It actually records very nice video files, so I'm really really happy with that. Um, I went out and got a fluid head because I wanted to do a little bit more video. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever be a video guy, but I wanted mm -hmm. some like B-roll stuff. So when I do a YouTube video or something, I just, sure. so when I would go out in the field that I think it's going to be a little slow, like the other day, I took the, I took the tripod out. I sat it on the ground. I did some ducks. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to kind of amass a portfolio of B-roll images so that I can, you know, do an intro or something or in the middle of a video, I can play a little clip, add a little music. Um, YouTube seems to like that style of, of video, like the storytelling, the short storytelling with some images and some music. Um, so I'm playing around with it a little bit, but I, I don't know that, that that's ever going to be like my thing. So Right. I, it's funny. <laughs> I, I finally talked to a friend of mine into getting the, the package, and he did it over the holidays. Now he's mad at me because he's like, it's it, the same thing, and I find myself doing it too. Even an image that normally looks pretty noiseless so to speak it shot at really low iso um i'll find myself throwing them in there too because it just does it just cleans the background up so yep. well that it makes an image just look that much better and this isn't a commercial for topaz well maybe it is kind of but um the other thing i was going to mention is on the gigapixel i've taken images that were started out fairly large to begin with but i needed to upsize them for a large canvas or a large metal print or something and in that upsizing process in the gigapixel it's incredible to me. It actually makes the image look better when it's done, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I'm just blown away by the capability. And the other thing that we talk about with Topaz quite a bit is the commitment by the software team there to continue to improve. And we're not talking like small improvements. We're talking significant improvements every iteration that comes out. So for me, when I pay for the suite every year, I feel like I definitely get, even though I only use the two modules mostly, um, I feel like I get my money out of it for sure. It's it's pretty incredible. Yeah, I, I do believe that 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 engine is the same in on a, all the software, and they've tweaked Gigapixel. So, like you said, you run it through Gigapixel, and you would literally just expect it to enlarge it. It would just add pixels, interpolate, you know, fill it out, make it bigger, but it cleans it up in the process. It it is actually running part of the denoise engine in there and part of the sharpen engine. If you run it through Gigapixel and you look at the finished product, the background is inevitably smoother and has less noise than when right. you started without putting it through anything. Um, when I run that, when I run Gigapixel, I, I normally run it as a standalone. So I normally just, I don't de use any denoise on it or sharpen because I don't want it to kind of sharpen it twice or denoise mm -hmm. it twice. I let Gigapixel do its thing first 
And then if there's any residual noise or anything that I want to clean up, I can go back in and run it through again. But yeah, it is a, uh, it's powerful software and they, they are committed to improving it. it there's always new iterations and uh, the software has gotten better since I guess the two years I've been using it, both mostly in terms of just being more user-friendly, more preview windows, you know, the ability to, to kind of add some different modes in there. They've tweaked the modes over the years. So yeah, I, I am a big fan. Yep. Well, and I'll just add too real quick. It is faster too. That's one thing. When I first got the software a couple of years ago, I was kind of complaining a little bit because it was like adding three or four minutes to my workflow for each photo. It felt like it just had to chug and do its thing. And like you said lately, I mean, it'll, it'll process an image in, a, you know, 30 seconds or something, whatever. It's really, it's really sped up and, you know, and it, it, it's not even a big deal to throw it in there and let it do its thing. But I do have a question for you just while we're on Topaz. Um, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your workflow and how you use that in conjunction with Lightroom and Photoshop because I have a way I do it and it seems to work, but I do know that when I take that raw image and I throw it in there, it spits me back out a tiff. And when I start to try to do any kind of major editing, I don't get the same color tones. I don't get the same, you know, just because of the, the less data, right, and that tiff versus the raw. So I'm just curious to hear your, your workflow. It's, it's weird. I don't, I don't like the raw editor in um, Topaz. So I, I did some experiments where I ran it through from the raw file, and then I opened it up as, a, as just a Photoshop PSD file. So I work largely in Photoshop. I don't work a lot in Lightroom. Uh, and it's really just like most of us are self-taught. So when I started photography, sometimes you get into bad habits. And one of the bad habits I got into was not archiving my, my archiving system is in, like stupid. Like if you saw how I archived images, you'd be like, what the hell is this guy thinking? He's wasting his time. <laughs> Just put it in Lightroom and, you know, throw some metadata in there and let it do its thing. But I never started in Lightroom. So I use the camera raw editor built into Photoshop, which is the same engine as the develop mode in Lightroom. And that's what I work out of. So I, I parse my images or call my images in Bridge. So I use Adobe Bridge. I, I have a system for marking them. You guys probably all have a system, you know, mm -hmm. stars or colors or whatever. And I do all that. I take everything that's not, not very good. And I convert it to a JPEG because I'm a, I hang on to things like I should, I know I should delete those files. I'm never going to use them again. But for some reason, I just, anything out of focus gets deleted, but anything that was in focus, it's like a JPEG now. So yeah. I have like 450,000 JPEGs of birds <laughs> that I'll never look at again. Um, <laughs> And then anything that I want to preserve and I think is rateable, so anything that's like maybe go on social media or was a nice image and I just didn't have the heart to convert it to a JPEG, I'll just save the raw file. And then once I, once I bring the raw file in, normally I just bring it right into Photoshop. I actually did a video very recently on this and it's my Topaz workflow. It's, it's out there for everybody to see, but I, I bring it into um, as a PSD file. I duplicate the layer, so I preserve the original untouched sometimes without even any camera raw edits um, because I like to see where I started from. And then I start working in layers from there. So I'll duplicate it. I run it through Topaz at that point. And then I also make a duplicate layer of the original. And, and one of the things I'll do is, so if, if layers are here and here, and this one's got the denoise and this one doesn't, sometimes I'll take the opacity down on the top layer and then blend them together. So if it sometimes it cleans it up almost too good. And it's just, there's like not a drop of noise left. And I'm like, yeah, I'll bring a little bit of noise back. I'll just lower <laughs> the opacity on that layer to about 80 or 90%. And then I'll blend it with the original. So I get kind of a hybrid of the original image plus what Topaz did. And, uh, and then I work from there. Then I'll bring it over <laughs> to camera raw and make some tweaks. I do that D 
denoise process uh, is, is that's kind of my standard. I, I use sharpen, but not as much. Uh, I use denoise on just about every image. And uh, from there, I'll take it back to camera raw. And then I'll make some tweaks and, and I'll build, you know, some extra layers from there if I have to remove anything or do any any fine tuning. When I first started using it, I found that or and, and it was, you know, just for me, self-discovery and I could have been doing something wrong. I'll admit sharpen tended to add artifacts to the image that sometimes, you you know, you couldn't get out and it, it looked cartoonish uh, to some degree. But when I ran it through Denoise, it was actually sharpening the image, and that artifacting didn't didn't take place. And I don't know if it was just because I got a, you know, like you guys were talking about, you know, a, an update, and that corrected everything, or what happened. But I I now only use Denoise. I don't even use Sharpen, and then Gigapixel on occasion. I'll use Sharpen more as like a recovery tool. Every once in a while. Um, you guys probably have the luxury of composing an image. And if you shoot 40 or 50 frames of the elk and three or four of them are out of focus, you're just not going to use them. Now imagine, now imagine you're on a hawk watch and a sharp shinned hawk is flying 70 miles an hour. It's 12 inches long, right? And he buzzes right by your face. And even at two thousandth of a second, there's like a little bit of motion blur, but you got the perfect shot. And it's funny, I, I, um, I, I ran an ad for Topaz, and it's, it shows a, a bird, a sharp-shinned hawk, mm -hmm. that is slightly out of focus, and then it shows my version of Sharpen AI. And of course, some wise-ass in the comments is like, well, a great photographer would have got it in focus the first time. And I'm like, this jackass has never tried to shoot a 12-inch bird moving 70 miles an hour at his face with a 500-millimeter lens. It's not easy. It's not easy just to keep the, the lens on that bird. And then, and then the, somebody's going to complain it's not tack sharp. Well, obviously, I'm not going to hang that on my wall, but I, it does show the power of what Topaz can do. Exactly. It took an image that was a miss like I, I couldn't have I couldn't have posted this I wouldn't have even put it on Instagram but after I ran it through sharpen and you're right it can create some artifacts and you don't always need it but it did tighten up the pixels and I was able to run it through a couple layers and it it actually looked really really good when I was done with it so I use sharpen more as a like a recovery tool and I use denoise more as like an everyday almost every image just just polish it up and uh, and I'll play with it when it's done so we'll have to get a link to your uh, workflow video and we'll throw that in the show notes so people can just sure. go take a look and, and just kind of see how you go through the process. I think yeah. that's advantageous for people that are that are learning. And then obviously, you know, if they desire more help, they can contact you about that. So, Scott, one of the things that we neglected to do at the beginning, uh, Jason and I, for whatever reason, tend to forget about this question. But having, no, no, we save it for the okay. We save it for the end. We savor it, yeah. <laughs> save it to be savored. <laughs> One of the questions that we ask all our guests is, uh, and you weren't an outdoorsman necessarily growing up, but in the last eight years or something, you said 2013 is about when you started. Yep. So you know, since then, or if it was before, that's fine. It doesn't have to be photographic, but what is your favorite ever outdoor experience? I, I will 
it, it was a series of experiences. So it was a, um, I took a trip with a friend who, one of the powers of Instagram for me has been connecting to people that I would never meet. I think it is, it is an undeniable uh, real advantage of social media. And there's a lot of bad stuff about social media. I mean, there's negativity and there's comments and there's obsession. There's comparing yourself to people that you shouldn't be comparing yourself with. Right. You know, these, these people that are doing wildlife photography full time have all the ability to travel the world. And here, you know, a lot of us are just regular people working a full time job, getting out on the weekends. And we want to look like their stuff. Right. And that's not always a good part of social media. The, the one of the greatest things about it for me has been um, just connecting people. So. If I, if I go out to Utah, right, and I go out to Wyoming, I got two people right here. Mm -hmm. I got Jason and Ron. And guaranteed if I go to Wyoming, Ron's getting a call. Yeah, so absolutely. there's that ability. So I, I meet a guy on Facebook. We're friends. We're very become very good friends on Facebook. He's like, I'm going to Alaska. Why don't you come with me? And I said, what does this involve? He said, this involves us living out of my car for a week, and we're going to drive to the Arctic Circle. And I was turning 50 years old. And I thought, sign me up. I'll be there. Who was this? Now, as I'm getting off the, as I'm getting off the plane, this is Theo. Uh, he goes oh, by the, yeah. He goes by the screen name Wind and Wing. As I'm no, getting I'm off the Theo's. plane, what? as I'm getting off the plane, I'm thinking, I don't know this guy. <laughs> like, I'm going to spend a week in a car in the tundra with a guy I never met before. Um, I will tell you, it was a, a game-changing experience because to, to go up, above the Arctic Circle and literally be able to look in either direction and know that for a hundred miles in either direction, there's not a single person. And at one point we were a hundred miles in any direction from a house. We were 200 miles to the next gas station from, from the one we were at. And uh, it was pretty, it was, it was a little scary. The roads up there are they're pretty rough. Mm -hmm. And it was just me and him. We, uh, we slept in the car. It was, gosh, one night it was 32 degrees. I was sleeping in the driver's seat and he was in the back and, um, it was cold in the middle. It was June and it was 33, 34 degrees in June when you get up that North, mm -hmm. but wow. just the experience, the vastness alone, it was mind blowing. And it, it was like something I, I, I would never forget my entire life. Um, I've had a lot of really neat experiences running into this, seeing that, not expecting an animal, you know, looking over a bobcat coming up the trail, never seen one before. There's a lot of those first moments, first time you saw like a certain owl. Um, but those are all pretty cool. But as a, as a total experience, that trip to Alaska was by far, I would say, the, the greatest experience I ever had. Alaska's tough to beat. You can, yeah. you can pretty much go anywhere and take a postcard shot. But the other thing is yep. the the diversity or the biodiversity up there is something that you can't even fathom um, coming from the lower 48. And it's all different, you know, than than what we typically see. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about the bird life or the, you know, the charismatic megafauna. You go up there and see yep. a musk ox instead of a bison and you're I mean, you're looking at something that literally looks prehistoric. And so I, I, we, we were in that situation. We were, uh, I was sleeping and, um, I, I, Theo, he hits me on the, on the, on the thing. I'd never seen a muskox in my life. 
and I wake up, I'm like, what's going on? Because up there, that's uh, in the summer, it's it's light all the time. So mm-hmm. your sleep schedule's all whacked. You sleep for a couple hours, you wake up, you sleep for a couple hours. So, you know, I'm all out of whack sleeping in the passenger seat. And I'm like, what's what's going on? He's like, look out the passenger. There's a muskox literally with his head almost in the car, just feeding <laughs> on the side of the road. It was my first time seeing a muskox. And um, it, it was pretty mind-blowing. And then on the way back, let me see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see. I actually have a picture so this is the muskox. Let me pull this up. Okay, that's the muskox that was on the side of the road. I had to stitch this together so I couldn't, I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't fit get his fat face yeah. in the lens. So I had to shoot one side of his face and then the other side, and then I had to like stitch them together in Photoshop. Um, but he was literally on the side of the road that we were driving on. On the way back, though, we had an, just an unbelievable experience uh, with this. So oh, there was this man. field of flowers. Yeah, and I'm telling you, yeah. one mus- muskox all by himself. Most of the other ones we saw after this were way on the horizon, like there were some herds. And we're just, uh, Theo and I are just looking at each other like, this is unbelievable. He's walking right at us. We hide behind these flowers. We get down low to get the flowers in the foreground. And, you know, he's perched in between those two trees with the mountain in the back. I'm like, Theo, it doesn't get any better than this. Now, this is a big animal. Mm-hmm. and he starts coming like he's just walking towards us i don't know muskox like if i guess if you know the species maybe i would have been more comfortable like oh they're they're you know they're docile they're not gonna ram you but in my head this is an animal that could kill you so like he's starting to get pretty close and i get this shot and i'm like all right this is good enough like i'm a little crazy but i'm not gonna die here in the tundra so i go back to the car theo's still down there i'm like dude you gotta it's time to go theo like I'm not dragging your dead body back to the States. <laughs> and uh, he, he hung in there for a little bit. I was, I was surprised. He hung in there for a little bit. And then it got a little too close, and then he was out too. But, yeah, what, a, what an amazing experience. Like, like you said, just a prehistoric-looking animal that you, you can't believe it still exists. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then just to get, like, those, those kind of images or just to experience it was just mind-blowing. Yeah, the fireweed up there makes everything yes. look tremendous. It's, it's just yep. everywhere. Yep. But yeah, that what, was, a, what, a, what an opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Great shot. Yep. And that was just, you know, again, it's just random. I always tell people, I think the best photographs normally come from your backyard area. You know, the areas you know well, you know what photographs well. Um, every now and then you just get lucky. And that's all this was. This was mm-hmm. just dumb luck. Anybody could have taken this picture. It's just, you know, being in the right spot at the right time and, and having that fireweed in the in the foreground. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe like putting it there takes a little bit of knowledge and skill but but other than that it's not you know that's just luck that's just it being in the right place at the right time yeah mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with a little bit of luck once in a while absolutely <laughs> no so much of that kind of photography really just does come down to timing yeah real good friend of mine mr bill allard we've talked about a lot on here um hopefully one day he'll grace us with his presence and tell some fun fun stories but uh he says that all the time it's all about timing We've had so many experiences driving through a park or something, whatever, where, you know, I, I, one quick story, we were driving, we were, you know, he's behind me, I'm in front of him, we're headed to a location, and I go up over a little hill, around the corner, all of a sudden Bill's gone, he's, he's not there. I'm like, well, I start waiting, and I'm thinking, okay, something's wrong. So I turn around and go back, and he's out photographing this black bear that had popped up right as I drove by. I missed it, he photographs the black bear. 
You know what I mean? It's and so just the yep. timing, right? Literally a second difference, and yep. you know he shot this black bear, and I missed out on that. So yep. yeah, anyways, a lot of that does come down to timing, but mm-hmm. and you, and you got to give yourself a little bit of credit, Scott. I mean, that's a pretty awesome I mean, image. So yeah. it's good. Yeah, it's pretty good. I I liked it. <laughs> you, you create your. If you wouldn't have been there, you wouldn't have created your own luck, right? So that that is a big lesson, I think, for everyone. You, like so many times, I think. You know, I, it's easy to just stay home, lay in, like sit on the couch on your day off after you've, you've worked a couple days in a row. And I just always say to myself, I've never taken a good picture from my couch. So <laughs> uh, like even today, I was like, yeah, there's there's really nothing to shoot up here in the northeast. When it free, when the water freezes, you lose ducks. So it's hard to get waterfowl. And there's not a lot of songbirds, especially this year. We didn't get a lot of finches and stuff that sometimes migrate down. So it's tough. You know, I've shot everything else. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, what what is there to do? So I just, I figured I'm still going to get out. I went out for a couple hours to a field where some harriers hang out and um, and froze. You know, it's cold and I got a couple shots, you know, and I, I thought mm-hmm. it's not a, that's the greatest day of my life, but yesterday was really, really good. I was really, really, really happy yesterday. And, you know, sometimes you just got to force yourself to get out. And even when it's cold and you'd rather be home, it's, it's mm-hmm. at the I, I don't think I've ever gone out and said, man, I wish I had stayed home. It's kind of like going to the gym. Like, I, I think there's a mentality, you know, like, I don't want to go to the gym or I don't want to do this. And you have people that are, you know, I'm not a gym guy, but if I was or when I used to be, you know, even on the days I didn't want to do it, you'd go and you'd come back and you'd say, well, I'm glad I did it. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad I went. Uh, so I think it's the same kind of thing. Very few people in wildlife photography go out for a day or a few hours and then come back and say, I wish I didn't, I wasted my time out there today. Whether they got images or not, it's normally a better alternative than staying home and sitting on the couch and watching TV mm-hmm. or consuming too much uh, social media. Without a doubt. <laughs> Could not agree with that statement more. And yet yeah. here I have sat editing video for the last two months. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will tell you this. I, I, one of the reasons I, I stay away from video is the editing. I enjoy editing photographs. Mm-hmm. It, video editing is a, I don't think people understand to edit, like even a 10 minute YouTube video probably takes me two or three hours of just putting in graphics, splicing it in here, changing the audio to get it right. Like, and it's still half the time. It's still, I, I ran one the other day and I'm like, the audio sounds horrible. What was I thinking? And I put like an hour in, into that very very short video and uh, yeah it is very i don't know how you do it it is very very time consuming well there are times where i don't know how i do it either but it's it's paying (laughs) the bills right now so yeah 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 it's like it's like you you just lock yourself in your mom's basement and do it right right that's exactly right And going back to what you said earlier your mom likes everything so she's going to tell you how good it is whether it is it is (laughs) Sure will. <laughs> Mom always loves you. <laughs> so, well, Scott, we've been at it for about an hour, a little over, and yep. we really appreciate your time. But is there anything else that you'd like to get out to folks? Uh, maybe go through how they can reach you, uh, where they can sure. view you on YouTube and, and your Instagram handle and that yep. kind of thing. Yeah. So if anybody's interested in my work, you can find me on Instagram at S keys images, all one word. Um, I have a website, same S keys images.com. 
And my YouTube show is actually called Wildlife Inspired. So I have those two channels, S-Keys Images and Wildlife Inspired. Um, if you're interested specifically in bird photography or editing, I have a Patreon site and it's patreon.com backslash wildlife inspired. So that's uh, a subscription service. But I, I will tell you, I, I'm always amazed that people will spend like $20,000 on gear, $10,000 on gear, and then they'll balk at $8 a month to learn how to edit an, an image or to, to, to actually work in the field. Um, you know, people think you buy $10,000 worth of cameras and somehow it goes out and takes the pictures by itself and then comes home and does the editing for you. And that don't happen. <laughs> right. So uh, it is only as good as what you put in and what you get out of it. So uh, for somebody to invest a lot of money in gear, I always say, you know, spend a few extra dollars a month, learn a little bit more about how to edit the images and how to polish them up. And then um, also some, some tips and tricks out in the field. So I actually show people uh, recently, like with waterfowl, you know, how do you get, how do you approach ducks? How do you get eye level? What's a good way to set up a blind? What's a good way to set up your equipment? I don't really put that out on my YouTube channel. Um, because I do want to save some of that content for people that are paying a subscription service. So, um, yeah, Wildlife Inspired on YouTube, Wildlife Inspired on Patreon, and then social media, S Keys Images, and my website is also skeysimages.com. Yeah, and I'll just give you a quick plug too, Scott. Um, I'm impressed. I actually didn't realize you had a full-time job too. You're very active on your social media, and the <laughs> amount of content you're putting out, that's that blows my mind because I feel like I, I'm I'm not very active online as anymore, and and I need to be better about it, but yeah. If so, <laughs> I think you're getting your money's worth from Scott because I'm I'm blown away that you actually have a full time job. Yeah, I I will tell you I do I put a lot of time into this, so it's a few hours a day, and you know I I my I, I don't have a lot else like I don't have any other hobbies, so this is where all my time and energy goes. It goes into photography or something bird related, whether it's YouTube or Instagram. Um, and I enjoy the Instagram. Oh, by the way, I forgot to, I got to plug one thing. <laughs> Damn it. I don't have it with me. <laughs> My ducks are assholes merchandise oh, line. Yeah, the hat. Oh, yeah. That's, those, I didn't, yeah. oh man, I didn't plug yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, I, I wish I could. So, anyway. Yeah, just send a link. You still can plug and it. And then. Ducksareassholes.com. <laughs> ducksareassholes.com. I bought the website. I bought the domain name. <laughs> so it's real easy. Just go to ducksareassholes.com. Actually, you know what? While you guys are here, you can say whatever you want. I'm going to open up the browser so because I got to show the good people. Yeah. I was I, so proud when I went there. I'm like, oh, some, somebody, because, you know, everybody owns every domain name. You can't, you know, somebody just buys all the domain names and you got to, here it is right here. I am going to have there one of those hats. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, the, the, the trucker hat is my big seller. Mm -hmm. uh, the beanie does well also. And then I did, and then I have a couple for birders where I, uh, birders have a thing where there's, so there's no such thing as a seagull. So people use the expression seagull all the time. Like, mm -hmm. oh, look, there's a seagull. If you say that to a birder, they will cringe because uh -huh. there is no such thing as a seagull. It's just a gull. So uh -huh. I actually made a mug that just says it's just gull. <laughs> with the little with the little duck giving the middle finger. you know how many so anyway. you know how many times i've done that now just because i after i watched your video where you uh you talked about that where you're playing different characters and yeah. i've got some friends that are just hardcore birders and written several books oh, yeah. and that kind of thing so i've yeah. tested it and you are correct <laughs> they will cringe <laughs> they will correct you and then call call canada geese call them canadian geese oh yeah and you will also be reprimanded by birders. I guarantee you. Go into a Facebook forum 
<laughs> that's just birders and just say, hey, I saw a lot of Canadian geese yesterday at my house. And absolutely somebody in the comments will correct you and say it's not Canadian geese, it's Canada No, geese. they were Canadian. <laughs> I saw where they were flying from. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I love it. You're giving us some fodder to go out and start some fights with. That's great. Oh, yeah. Birders are fun. I, I like to mess with them a little bit. I have a lot of birder friends, but I, I, I got to be honest. They're easy to tweak, and it's kind of fun. That's great. I'm in. Yeah. I'm going to be getting one of those hats. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to have one of those hats. So, All right. Well, thanks a lot, Scott. And, again, make sure that you check out his uh, social media sites and also his YouTube content. There's some great stuff there. You won't be disappointed. And again, has a good time while he does it. And that's what it's all about. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town.